What kind of legacy do you want to leave? That's a question for all of us to ask ourselves. When we're gone, what kind of mark do we want to have made on this world? What do we want to have handed down to our children or to the next generation? Money? Property? A business of some kind? Maybe there are values and priorities we would like to have passed on. Then the more awkward question is, never mind the legacy I might dream of leaving behind, what legacy am I actually leaving behind? Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, was pretty clear on what he wanted to leave. He said, I want to leave a ding in the universe. What he meant was, he wanted his beautifully designed bits of tech to make a lasting mark in the world. But now that he's gone, his family might say the legacy he actually left was neglect and bitterness, the fallout from a selfish life. Now, I'm not qualified to say what his true legacy is or is going to be. Only time will tell how lasting those bits of technology are going to be. Will history remember Steve Jobs as a man who made a permanent mark in all of our lives? Or will he be remembered as a man who sacrificed his family for the sake of some gadgets that were pretty quickly forgotten? I don't know the answer for Steve Jobs, but this morning we're going to look at another man's legacy. And when it comes to this person, we do have enough information to be able to talk about his legacy. We're in the book of First Kings in the Old Testament. We've been working our way through this. And in recent weeks, we've heard a lot about King Solomon. His great wisdom, his great wealth, his great fame. And now we're going to hear about his long-term legacy. What did he leave to his children and to his people after he was gone? Turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Kings chapter 11. In the Church Bible, that's page 350. And in the larger print Bibles, page 538. Last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 11 and we heard that Solomon loved many foreign women. Those were women, of course, who worshipped foreign gods. And we're told that as he grew old, Solomon's wives turned his heart away from the true God. It wasn't just a momentary slip up. It was a settled shift in Solomon's devotion. We're told he held fast in love to his foreign wives and their foreign gods. In fact, he threw himself into worshipping those foreign gods. Beside Yahweh's temple, 
He went on to build a shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And this week, we're going to ask the question, and we're going to get an answer, what is going to come of all this? We'll find out as we pick up at chapter 11, verse 9, and read through to the end of chapter 11. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men of Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then, taking people from Paran with them, they went down to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Tapens, in marriage. The sister of Tapens bore him a son named Genubath, whom Tapens brought up in the royal palace. There, Genubath lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his ancestors, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go, so that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here, that you want to go back to your own country, Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezin, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. When David destroyed Zobah's army, Rezin gathered a band of men around him and became their leader. They went to Damascus, where they settled and took control. Rezin was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezin ruled in Aram and was hostile towards Israel. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zerua. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. 
About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws, as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. This is God's word. During Solomon's life, as we've seen recently, he made plenty of wise decisions. He produced some great writings, some of which we have in scripture today. He set up some very effective government structures. He brought genuine prosperity to Israel. He built a magnificent temple. He accumulated unparalleled amounts of wealth. But Solomon's most significant legacy was his disobedience to God. And the consequences of that disobedience. More than his wealth, more than his wisdom, it was his disobedience that left the greatest mark. It led to the kingdom of Israel being torn apart. That word torn is used five times in the passage we just read. And we're going to see that take place in the rest of First and Second Kings. But here, it's explained to us ahead of time. 
The opening verses that we read tell us that God keeps his word. Our decisions have consequences. What God says and does in this passage should not be a shock. It should be entirely expected. When we read in verse 9 that the Lord became angry with Solomon, we need to see this is not God losing his temper. This is God keeping his promise. Verse 9 reminds us God had appeared to Solomon twice. Two times God had personally explained to Solomon that our decisions have consequences. Most recently in chapter 9, God said this to Solomon. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, when I said you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. God said to Solomon, this will be the consequence if you live in obedience to me. Then in that same passage, God went on to give the alternative. If you turn away from me, the consequence of that, God said, will be disaster. It was all made very clear. What we have here in chapter 11 is just God keeping his word. Look again at verse 10. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And as we read this, it's important for you and I to see this is not a one-off thing. This is not unique just to Solomon. This is how it always works. The very beginning of the Bible describes the beginning of human existence. Genesis chapter 1 describes the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 2 then tells us this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the situation. And then further down we're told, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Consequences. God spelled it out ahead of time. He made it clear, this is what will happen if you disobey. And on the positive side, if you obey, there's life and delight in store for you. This amazing place will be your home forever. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us the man and his wife decided to disobey God. And they lost it all, just as God said. 
Death came to them in a whole lot of ways. Most obviously, physical death came into their experience. But also the death of that idyllic situation God had given them. They were exiled from that garden. They were cut off from God's presence. And if we read Genesis 3, we discover they became alienated from one another as well. And none of it should have been a surprise. God said it would happen if they disobeyed. And now, in our passage, thousands of years later, it's all playing out again for Solomon. God had given the Israelites a land of their own, described as a land flowing with milk and honey, a prosperous place. Chapter 4 described it as a place where the people ate, drank, and were happy. That was life in Israel, God's gift. And God gave Israel rest from her enemies. There was peace. God was among his people. He was truly present in that beautiful temple in Jerusalem. In many ways, it was like another Garden of Eden. And God said to Solomon essentially what he had said to Adam so long before. Just obey me. Walk before me faithfully and you will keep this forever. Turn from me and all of this will go. Your decisions have consequences. And today... You and I are dealing with the same God. He calls us to obedience. And it's a very specific obedience. Today he points to Jesus Christ and he says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Today, the the obedience that's required of you and me is not primarily keeping the Old Testament law. Today, you and I obey God by listening to Jesus. Receiving him for who God says he is. And in the Bible, listening to someone means submitting to them. It means living under the authority of the person we're listening to. Since Jesus came, we obey God by living with Jesus as our Lord. All of us have a decision to make. Will we believe in Jesus? Will we bow to him or not? And in the New Testament, the consequences of our decision are also spelled out for us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The point is, the God of the Bible is consistent. He always calls us to obedience, and he always tells us the consequences of obedience or disobedience. And then God keeps his word.
Sometimes people ask, what about those who haven't heard about Jesus? Don't worry about that. God is big enough to sort that out fairly. What you and I need to face is this. We have heard about Jesus. Are we going to listen to him and believe in him or not? God has told us ahead of time what the consequences will be. Either life with God forever, enjoying his favor, or life apart from God forever, under his wrath. And we know God keeps his word. Adam and Eve show us that. King Solomon shows us that. The consequences of Solomon's disobedience are going to play out over hundreds of years. But they begin to play out right here in our passage. Look down to verse 14. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. This is a new development. Adversaries had been a constant threat in Israel's past. But so far, as we've gone through 1 Kings, adversaries have been noticeably absent during Solomon's reign. His father, David, spent most of his time fighting enemies. But God has given Israel rest under Solomon. That's what allowed Solomon to build that big temple. Years before this, Solomon wrote to Hiram of Tyre, and he said, there is no adversary. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. In other words, I have been freed up from having to defend my borders all the time. Now I can build. But now, towards the end of Solomon's reign, as a sign that God keeps his word, he raises up an adversary, Hadad the Edomite. Here's Israel, and Edom borders Israel to the south. The thing to notice is, Hadad has been in the background all along. He was a boy during David's reign. During a battle with Israel, he had fled down to Egypt and escaped. It seems he came back to Edom at the start of Solomon's reign, but he's been quiet all those years until now. Then if you look down to verse 23, we're told, And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezin, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. When David destroyed Zobah's army, Rezin gathered a band of men around him and became their leader. They went to Damascus, where they settled and took control. Rezin was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezin ruled in Aram and was hostile towards Israel. Saying Rezin was an adversary as long as Solomon lived apparently means from this point on until Solomon's death. And Rezin is in Damascus, which is to the north of Israel, up here. 
So now Israel is threatened from above and from below. And like Hadad the Edomite, Rezin has been around all along. But only now does he become actively opposed to Solomon because God keeps his word. Particularly these verses show us God keeps his word of judgment. If Solomon had doubted whether there would be consequences for his disobedience, he couldn't doubt it for long. And it turns out Hadad and Rezin are just the warm-up. The biggest adversary is about to come from within Israel, from Solomon's own staff. We're introduced to this adversary in verse 26. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials. We're told in the verses that follow that Jeroboam was an exceptionally able young man. Solomon had promoted him quite quickly to a high position. And then look at verse 29. About that time, that means about the time he was being promoted by Solomon, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. There are a few things we need to get hold of here. First, this meeting seems to be planned by Ahijah, not by Jeroboam. Second, Ahijah is a prophet, and he's a bit mysterious. He appears just out of the blue. All we know about him is his hometown. That's the way it tends to be with Old Testament prophets. They are unusual characters. But they're hugely significant. Not because of their personal details, but because of the work that they do. They deliver God's word. This is how the New Testament describes their work. It says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And from this point on in Israel's history, the prophets are going to take a central role in what goes on. From now on, Israel's kings cannot be relied on to listen to God. The kings cannot be relied on to call the people back to God. The prophets are going to do that work. And a lot of the time, they are going to be hated for it. And here, Ahijah the prophet steps out of obscurity and begins tearing up his clothes right in front of Jeroboam. Now, if I did that, you'd think I'd gone crazy. And you'd be right. But I'm not an Old Testament prophet. They regularly did pretty odd things. It gets a whole lot stranger than this at times in the Old Testament. But the odd things they did always illustrated their message in some way. The strange behavior always had a point. 
It made their message more powerful and more memorable. And here, Ahijah tears his new cloak into 12 pieces, and verse 31 tells us, he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me or done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. So now we know which one of Solomon's subordinates God is giving the kingdom to. Through Jeroboam, God is going to prove that he keeps his word of judgment. It's all going to play out in the chapters to come, just the way Ahijah announces it here at the beginning. Now, none of this means that Jeroboam is a great man, or even a good man, any more than it means Hadad or Rezin are good men. The point is, though, God is faithful. When God says that sin and rebellion have consequences, he means it. And he delivers. The Bible shows us that again and again and again. It shows us that so that we will take God's word seriously today. Today, God says, the wages of sin is death. And if you and I have any sense, we will believe him when he says that. God warned Adam and Eve about it, and they found out it was true. God warned Solomon about it, and now the writer of Kings is showing us it's true. Death for Adam and Eve meant a whole lot of loss. Physical death, the death of their satisfying, fulfilling way of life, the death of their marital harmony, and the death of their intimacy with God. Death for Solomon is going to mean Israel being torn apart. Eventually it's going to mean the beautiful temple becoming empty of God's presence eventually being reduced just to rubble. And in the end, it's going to mean Israel being exiled from the land God had given them. Death for you and me would mean eternal exile from God's presence. Not in some kind of never-ending sleep, but in darkness and torment. That is what the New Testament tells us. And we know God has always kept his word of judgment before. We're seeing that in Israel's history. Why would we doubt he will keep his word of judgment in our case too? Thankfully though, God not only keeps his word when it comes to judgment, 
he also keeps his word of grace. When we read through this passage to begin with, you may have noticed something that gets repeated over and over. Back in verse 13, when God explained that the kingdom would be torn from Solomon's son, God added this. He said, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. Later in the passage, Ahijah repeated that to Jeroboam. And if you wondered about the maths of this, there are 12 tribes in Israel. Jeroboam gets 10. Solomon's son is going to get one. Well, the answer seems to be that the little tribe of Benjamin was often considered a part of the much larger tribe of Judah. So the one tribe consists actually of Judah with Benjamin included. But it's almost always called just Judah. That's what Solomon's son is going to get. And towards the end of our passage, Ahijah mentions this again. He says in verse 36, speaking about Solomon's son, I will, speaking about Solomon, I will give one tribe to his son, so that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. And then God says to Jeroboam, if you're obedient, I'll give you a dynasty, but not an eternal one. I've promised that will come from David's descendants. And so, down in verse 39, I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Why not forever? Because God had given his word to David. His word that he would bring an eternal kingdom from David's line. That promise is one of the key passages in the whole of the Bible. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And all of this judgment that has been foretold for us here, all of this judgment that is being put in motion here in this chapter, it does not cancel out God's promise to David. Every time in this passage God says, for the sake of my servant David, that's shorthand for, for the sake of my promise to David. So Solomon is being punished for his sin. Solomon's legacy is a legacy of disobedience. And the consequences of that are going to be long and bitter. But God keeping his word of judgment does not do away with his word of grace. That's what the promise to David was, a word of grace. God didn't owe David the promise of an eternal kingdom. When God made the promise, he said, actually, David, you weren't really up to much. I took you from tending sheep and appointed you ruler of my people. God said to David, It was me who defeated those enemies you fought against. It was me who gave you those great victories and made you great. And then God said, because of my own choice, because of my own desire to bless and to pour out grace, because that's the kind of God I am, I will establish an eternal kingdom 
through your descendants. Not because you earned it, David, but because I want to give it. And here, in 1 Kings 11, God says, because of Solomon's sin, I will humble David's descendants. But not forever. You could write those words over the rest of the Old Testament like a banner. But not forever. God says, out of this death spiral that Israel is about to go into, I'm going to bring new eternal life in the end. And God did. The end of 1 Kings 11 records Solomon's death for us. He's gone now, and for all of his wisdom and all of his wealth, his most lasting legacy was disobedience. It was a people torn apart by God's judgment. But the New Testament focuses in on a descendant of David who came 930 years after Solomon. It tells us Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills God's promise to David. The promise of an eternal kingdom. How did Jesus set up that kingdom? He set it up by being torn apart by God's judgment. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He wasn't like Solomon. He didn't deserve God's judgment. But he took it so that you and I would not have to. Jesus was torn apart so you and I can be made whole. Forgiven of our sin, delivered from its eternal consequences, able to enjoy new life with God here and now. Earlier we heard the New Testament's promise that our decisions have consequences and that God keeps his word of judgment. We were told the wages of sin is death. Now we can add the rest of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what this table is all about. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ was torn apart for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed. On the cross, God kept his word of judgment. Sin was punished in Jesus. And in that very same event, God was also keeping his word of grace. All those who trust in Jesus' sacrifice are delivered from God's judgment. Jesus took it in our place. Instead of the wrath we deserve, we receive God's gift of life. That is the legacy of King Jesus. Life and forgiveness and hope. The opposite of Solomon's legacy. And it's a legacy that will bring Jesus eternal praise. You and I have an opportunity to join in that praise by giving our lives to him.
I encourage you to do that today if you haven't already. And if you have, we have opportunity now to begin praising him with our lives and we're going to do it now with our words as we sing together, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God.